Hello everyone, it's March 22nd, 2022. So not a big show this week, but we're going to talk about the Artemis rollout and the upcoming white dress rehearsal. We are inching ever closer to a launch. Spaceflight has taught me nothing if not patience, but no need to wait for the show. Let's do it. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 351 of the Open Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Ben, tell us about James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, I mean, quick update, because we already talked about this, but they they are into, uh, they, they finished the fine phasing step, and now they are um, tuning their alignment, t- tuning the image to be aligned in all of the instrument fields, not just the near cam, which is where they do the primary alignment. So we're getting closer. The images look fantastic so far. I mean, like not to my eye, but the scientists are like, yeah, this is good. The alignment numbers are really good. So they did all their image stacking, which like I took an entire episode to talk about, right? Because it's just, it's so complicated. Now they're on the last two steps, basically um, getting all of the instruments aligned. And then the final one in the James Webb Space Telescope uh, Deployment Explorer is called Iterate Alignment for Final Correction. So I think it's just the the small little things that they've noticed are wrong. Uh, they can they can go and tweak them, and then they um, they do their final quality checks, and they're good to go. Uh, go out and get some science. We finally have the Artemis One rollout. Yeah, and not a whole lot to talk about just yet, but soon there will be coming up. Um, we we have a dress a wet dress rehearsal coming up. Everything but the launch. I feel like that's what they should be called. I just thought of that. Everything but the launch and the ignition, I guess. Yeah, yeah and and SLS's wet dress rehearsal goes up to, I think T minus two minutes. It must be T minus two seconds. It's got to be. Do you, Do you happen to know when the uh, RS twenty fives ignite relative to the SRBs? Or I guess you know, fire relative. To it's the probably the same as as shuttle. Two sec- two and a half seconds or something like that. It's a long it was much time. Longer man. for some reason. <laughs> I might even be like five seconds. It's a long. That's why I was going to say I thought it was five or six. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why I was wondering if because uh, you know how badly I misremember things. <laughs> um, and they they also like they light them up early so that they have time to detect shutdown conditions before they light the SRBs. So it's. It's a bunch of different things going on all at once. They do, um, you know, the the vector uh, testing to at least on shuttle they had to vector them away from zero, so they also get to verify their TVC works. Yeah, and they did that a few times. Yeah, redundant. What was it called? Let's see if I can remember this. Redundant set launch sequence. Or Ooh. Is, is that it? RSLS abort. Redundant set launch sequence abort. RTLS is returned to, return to launch, launch site. <laughs> Redundant set launch sequencer. Yeah, you got it. Hey, thank you. Good job. All right. So the main engines come on. Uh, they have to reach their, you know. Steady state kind of. Yeah, because there actually is a little bit of, you can watch the nozzles like wobble a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And uh, as yep. the exhaust is a little bit detached at first. And so it needs to ramp all the way up so that you have a good flow. Then the SRBs come on. Yeah. Yeah. And the best part is in between, right? Because the. The orbiter's engines are not along the center, you know, the main axis yeah. of the spacecraft. So they do the twang <laughs> and you fire the SRBs right when the twang, or when it's vertical again. What a ridiculous, that's something I feel like I would jerry-rig and Kerbal to like learn how to do if I built a rocket that wasn't quite good enough. Yeah. And to think that we did that in reality, I think is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, when it, whenever I made a uh, a vehicle with solid boosters, I would always put two different 
launch triggers in there or staging engine startups because it was just it was fun to do <laughs> right right <laughs> authentic <laughs> but now with sls there is no twang right because uh, there's no shuttle sitting on the side of the boosters or the you know it's external mm. tank so yeah. you don't have to worry about that that should simplify a lot of things yeah so the tanking for this will take eight hours as opposed to two and a half for a shuttle and uh, that's because there's more tank volume plus there's an upper stage tank too so mm. this requires two controller shifts does that mean like two actual shifts like yeah. people having to come in and right supervise it, it's, this? it's not just like you clock in eight hours worth of tanking and you clock out you know, there's all the stuff at the beginning and end of the tanking process. So, yeah, they, they split into two separate work shifts. And do you think the shifts are uh, specific to the tank? Like there's the main tank shift and then the upper no. stage shift? No. No. Because that wouldn't split up the eight hours. Exactly. Actually. Okay. Plus you would, because you have to be mindful of, you know, the boil off that's inevitably going to happen, right? So you, you would want to start fueling them all at the same time, right? I think I think you want to end fueling them all at the same time. And since it's a smaller tank... Well, okay, yeah, there's one that's smaller. Sure, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right, yeah, they, they stagger the time. Plus it has to... You have to, like, let it... Uh, what's the word? It's, like, the opposite of, like, soaking cold, in heat, cold but... Cold soak, uh, yeah. It's cold soak, mm. yeah. So not only is there more fuel to dump into the vehicle, but also there are more interfaces than shuttle had. So there are more opportunities for cryos to, to leak and for, for there to be issues just in the cryo plumbing. So it's, it's not only eight hours of work, but it's also more work, more things to monitor and more things to fix potentially. 322 feet and there's umbilicals from the top to the bottom essentially. So. Yep. That's a tall rocket. Yeah, it's it's big. But I'm surprised a long March 9 is almost as tall as the SLS Block 1 is. Hmm. Yeah, because the only thing larger than an SLS I thought would be Starship, right? Once that's stacked. Like current, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, currently. But e even Starship, like it's once you get to a certain size, you start making making them wider, not so much making them taller. It's kind of like, you know, small rockets have really small aspect ratios. They're really, really narrow. And then once you start making them bigger, you hit sort of, you know, this key aspect ratio that then sticks around for a long time. Like as you grow, the aspect ratio stays the same rather than, you know, being really nice and slim. So the wet dress rehearsal is scheduled for April 3rd. Um, and once they do that, they will roll it back to the VAB uh, one and a half weeks later. So I don't know. We'll see what happens from there. It's still such a very slow process, but it is creeping forward. So after yeah, after the wet dress rehearsal, they're going to roll it back to the, the VAB, and then they're going to perform even more tests on it. Um, they're still going to do some stuff, depending on, I guess, exactly how the wet dress rehearsal went. And so that's why there's nominally a target launch in the middle of May, but they're expecting it to slip into the summer at some point. And I think after the wet dress rehearsal is when we'll get a more likely launch date. So let's do three short and sweets, and Ben, you have the first one. All right, SpaceX sets two new records. SpaceX's most recent Starlink mission broke two records for the company. Its Falcon 9 rocket, specifically booster B-1051, carried its heaviest payload yet at 16.25 metric tons, this being the result of an upgrade that increases the satellite's mass from around 260 to 306 kilograms. 
This Falcon 9 launch also sets a reuse record. The booster was successfully launched and recovered 12 times, its first mission being Crew Demo 1 three years ago. Two other boosters have also flown 11 times and thus may soon tie this most recent launch in successful recovery count. Then next up, first all cosmonaut Soyuz docks was stationed. On March 18th, Soyuz MS-21 docked with the ISS, containing three cosmonauts and no other international crew. However, this unusual crew manifest has nothing to do with the recent conflict in Ukraine. The decision to make the crew entirely Russian was made in October of last year, delaying the original crew swap between MS-21 and SpaceX Crew-4 to later on this year for missions MS-22 and Crew-5. According to NASA, the crew swap for these later flights is still go, with training in Star City and Hawthorne respectively. And finally, China's satellite launch includes demonstration third stage. China recently launched the Yaogan 3402 military remote sensing satellite on a Changzhen 4C rocket from the Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center, including a test payload third stage. This stage, analogous to Rocket Lab's Photon spacecraft, is capable of performing a second mission after deployment of the launch vehicle's primary payload. Details on both the primary and secondary payloads were not released, but it appears the third stage successfully demonstrated the capability to release the primary payload, then reignite and deploy the secondary to another orbit. Okay, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have four winners. <laughs> we have the Greek. Deskin Miller, Hot Stuff, McTidal Potts, and Peter McMally. So, the clue was Ghost Beetroot Calls Home. Ghost Beetroot Calls Home. That's just a weird clue, but uh, <laughs> it made sense to some people. Um, <laughs> yeah, so tell us about the Ghost Beetroot. I don't know what to even say to that. I, I, li I like this tweet, and I think I like the fact that it so befuddles you. So, this week in Spaceflight History is the 25th of March, 1961. Uh, it was the launch of Karabal Sputnik 5, also known as Vostok 3KA number two. That's tracking by version. So, this is the second. Uh, the second 3KA. It's also called Sputnik 10. At least it was called Sputnik 10 in the West, which is just tracking orbital launches out of Russia. Um, so like I said, this is the 3KA2 or the, the 3KA version of Vostok. In particular, this is 3KA2. So that's like a, a subversion number. Um, Gagarin would fly on the next flight of Vostok, uh, but that would be in a 3KA version 3, which is almost identical. Notably, it's missing the self-destruct system, but it, it's basically the same vehicle. So yeah, th this flight was notable because it was the last flight of Vostok uh, before a, a crew flight. Um, if there weren't people on board, what was on board? Well, first off was uh, Ivan Ivanovich. In my notes, I call him experienced mannequin. Uh, I call him experienced because he also flew on... Uh, uh, 3KA number one, uh, the previous flight. Now, Ivan is a very weird uh, object. Um, there's this wonderful article uh, in The Atlantic that'll be linked in the show notes. The Atlantic is a little obsessed with this uh, with this mannequin, this dummy, in kind of a wonderful way. So first off, yeah, you know, uh, human analogs are, are always creepy, right? <laughs> Death came in the chest says pre-flown test dummy. Yeah, exactly. The, the, I mean, human analogs are always going to be creepy because they're shaped like people, but they're not people. Um, but Ivan is even a little bit weirder. Um, he has a, a high fidelity face, uh, including like, you know, eyebrows and eyelashes. Um, but the, the face and all the, well, all the skin is made out of leather. I'm assuming the face is probably made out of plastic, uh, but he's got leather skin, a, 
like a steel endoskeleton, really kind of a weird mix of things. And the Atlantic says like, what makes him even weirder is that this thing has got experiments in the, in the legs and the chest cavity. They have little pockets to put uh, payloads. And so I don't know exactly what Yvonne flew with on this flight, but Um, He is credited with carrying 80 mice, uh, that's 40 white mice and 40 black mice, Uh, some guinea pigs, reptiles, human blood samples, human cell cultures, uh, bacteria, yeast, you know, a bunch of, uh, oh, great. Now the the chat is just full of horrible GIFs and images. Great. Um, Yeah, this is disturbing. Yeah, I don't like it. Um, Also on board was Zvezdoshka. A, a a space dog, a space pupper, and uh, Zvezdoshka is a fantastic name. Um, Zvezda is one of the modules on ISS. Uh, it means stars. Zvezdoshka is a diminutive, so it's like starlet or like little star. And I I just love mm. the. I love Russian familiar name diminutives. They just feel good to me. And Zvezdoshka is just fun to say. I like it. Okay, so 3KA number two, or uh, Krabble Sputnik number five, or Sputnik number 10 <laughs> flew uh, a single orbit. Um, uh, the flight took 105 minutes. I'm assuming that that is launch to landing, and a decent amount of that time was spent uh, descending under a parachute. Uh, however, uh, I, I didn't find uh, orbital parameters, but I'm assuming this was a relatively high flight. All of these early flights um, flew fairly high. Um, I think mostly because we didn't have uh, very good characterization of upper atmosphere effects. During the flight, not only did they have all the biological experiments on board, uh, but they also did a communication system test, uh, you know, just testing the radio. And Soviet Russia did not want the U.S. to think that this was a crude mission because it would look very much like a potential reconnaissance mission. Um, And they didn't want to, you know, create an international incident. So what they did was the audio that they broadcasted, obviously it had to be recorded, um, but they wanted it to be very clear that it was not normal crew chatter. So there were two things on the recording that I was able to find. One was a recording of uh, of a chorus or, or a choir singing. And that, that seems really good, right? If you hear choral music coming down from space, you can be pretty sure that it's a recording and not an entire choir in a tiny little Vostok. The Mm -hmm. other thing that they had um, was human speech, which is important. If you're testing your comm systems, you want to test, you know, fly what you test, test what you fly, and like actually use human voice so that it's uh, a a good way to interpret how successful you will be at understanding people in the future. So the voice sample that they had uh, is where the clue comes from. It was a recipe for borscht. I had a feeling borscht had something to do with it. Yeah. And the the description is that it was being read as though it was being prepared on orbit. And like it's that's whimsical and lovely. Um, interesting that borscht is a Ukrainian dish, but you know, Ukraine was part of the Soviet 
Union and uh, Russia still thinks that they are part of Russia. So it's, it's not that unusual. You know, it's, this isn't a political statement. It's just, it kind of stands out in, uh, in early 2022. So while this seems like a really good call, you know, read something ridiculous uh, so that you can get good voice sample, but it's clearly not um, you know, a person up there. Um, while that's a good idea, they vastly overestimated Americans ability to a <laughs> understand Russian and B not freak out when they heard Russian coming down from space. So a, a bunch of non-Russian speakers, uh, mistook a recipe for actual crew chatter from all I can see the, the actual U S government understood what was going on and didn't freak out. But, uh, but a lot of people mm. thought that there was an actual crew flight that had happened. Um, and you know, rumors abounded, uh, Dennis. So you actually did some quick research and you found orbital parameters for us, huh? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And you were exactly right about the, uh, duration of the orbit. So it was, uh, it was a 164 by 230 kilometer orbit, which would have an orbital period of 88.42 minutes. So there's about 16 additional minutes when you account for uh, overhead parachuting in and all that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the clue, right? Ghost beetroot calls home. Uh, the beetroot is the recipe and the ghost is there was nobody on board. It was a creepy metal mannequin with mice in his chest and uh, leather for skin. Oh God. Yeah, and human blood and stuff. <laughs> you, right, right. Had human blood, didn't have human skin, had cow skin. Okay. All right. So uh, the mission landed uh, in the Soviet Union's territory. Um, the mannequin uh, was ejected on descent. They, they were testing the ejection seat. They, they did that on 3KA number one as well. N nearby locals responded to the site. Uh, it took about 24 hours for the actual recovery team to arrive. Uh, and when they did arrive, the locals actually had to help them get to the, the landing site using a horse-drawn sled. So th this is such a, a weird instant. Right now, I think anybody seeing a parachute coming down from the sky and something that looks like a spacecraft is going to go, that's a spacecraft. In fact, we mistake lots of other things for spacecraft. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, they uh, they thought the mannequin was was an actual person, which isn't as like superstitious as it sounds. Imagine being out in the middle of the Russian countryside and you hear a sonic boom. It sounds like a bang. You're going to interpret that bang as anti-aircraft fire because like it, you know, it's the Cold War. And then you see somebody floating down under a parachute, like not only a person, but somebody who's totally limp like that says this is a pilot who's been shot down it just really it, it makes a lot of sense once you once you actually think about it and and you know if you just read the wikipedia page and see oh they they mistook it for a human it sounds really uh foolish and and superstitious but anyway mm -hmm. so they they see this uh this uh parachute coming down and they're like oh that dude is dead and i believe that they didn't even go out to check on the the potential pilot i don't know they they might have if they would have and actually decided hey we're gonna we're gonna intercede here and, and touch the the mannequin they would have realized really quickly that it wasn't obviously it's you know too heavy and has mice in it but also the the helmet um the face the the head is inside the helmet they actually the head was removable they had to install the head in the helmet and then screw it onto the uh onto the body with the helmet on but inside the helmet in front of the face was what looks like a, a card with um 
with the word maquette written on it, which is Russian for mock-up, um, to make it clear that this is not a person. Chubby in the chat actually says that that they did this so that they wouldn't smash <laughs> smash the, the <laughs> dummy to smithereens, which which makes sense. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if they ever saw it. I wasn't able to find a, a, a report of whether or not that happened. But when the recovery team got there 24 hours later, um, the capsule had been sitting for 24 hours in five feet of snow, and it was still too hot to touch. Oh boy, this is why we don't use spherical uh, reentry capsules anymore, I suspect. <laughs> Um, really, really kind of crazy. I wonder if it just re-entered at a, at a steeper angle than they did later. It seems to me that no matter how hot it got, like after five hours in snow, it would be cool enough. 24 hours in five feet of snow. I'm like, sorry. This is insane. 24 hours, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is cold and it was still hot. Yeah. So it, yeah. it is really, really unusual that that would still be the case, but that's, that's what report said. So Chris says snow is an insulator, which is true. But they were in contact with the snow. It's five feet of snow. So five feet of snow, uh, a, a cylinder, five feet tall, and as big around as the capsule, melted, which would coat this thing in water. I mean, it, it would be right. sitting in a, in a puddle of water. Um, that's not insulating. That is very, very much cooling by conduction. Yes, yeah, snow is only an insulator if it's still snow. Right. And the thing is, it's only going to keep the capsule from heating up more due to solar radiation. If anything, the snow is going to put the capsule in shadow and help it cool down faster. The capsule is going to cool down through radiation and through conduction. And maybe the snow is going to keep air from circulating around the capsule quite as well, and that would keep it warmer. But I think on balance, this is uh, the snow is only going to going to help cool it down. It, it, I love little uh, physics questions like this. Like the answer is there somewhere. It's written down. We could calculate all these effects, but it's it's fun that everybody has different approaches to how they're going to solve this problem and comes up with different answers. What was a ceramic ablation material in the capsule? Nothing. It was stainless steel. It's a shiny. It's a shiny sphere. So how did it make it back? If it's just a sphere, I mean, I guess the temperatures weren't so high to melt it. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to the ballistic coefficient. It had a lower ballistic coefficient, and so that prevented it from like getting too hot. Yeah, it doesn't punch through the atmosphere quite as well. But even then, that's what causes a longer heat soak. So maybe that's why it took forever to cool down, because it was hot like all the way through. But it seems like the, everything inside it, including the dummy, would be like toasty. Yeah, I think you got to be right. I think this thing was hot all the way through. Yeah. So the dog didn't make it? No, both were recovered successfully. And uh, nice little tidbit, Zvezdoshka was named by Yuri Gagarin. Oh. Man, who doesn't love the Soviet space dogs? Like, they all have good names. They're all super adorable. They were all, quote unquote, rescued off the street. I'm sure a lot of these stray dogs had really horrible lifetimes. Uh, but like the space dogs that actually went to space, like became celebrities and had a fantastic life. Yeah, a real rags to riches story for a dog. <laughs> <laughs> rags to riches through flame. All right. Well, that is your This Week in Spaceflight History. That's an interesting one. Yeah. And a good oh, yeah. cryptic clue. Oh, thank you. That was a wonderful event, <laughs> Ben. I got to admit, a, a certainly one that's a bit out there. <laughs> to say the least, uh, with the mannequin and everything. But I didn't realize just how many mannequins there were <laughs> in early Soviet spaceflight, but there were quite a few. 
And I'm glad the pooch made it. Yeah. So, David, you've got next week's event, which is the week of the 29th of March through the 4th of April. And do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And the clue is for next week in 1968, less than perfect, but successful, but a failure. <laughs> All three. I, like, I, I don't know what it's referring to exactly, but I do like the way that you've written it. And so um, if you do think you know what that clue is, uh, please send us an email or you can tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck. So we can now move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And we have a couple of those. And Dennis, what's the first one? So the first one we've got on Tuesday, March 22nd. And this is the launch of a Meridian M number 20L communication satellite for both military and civilian use that will be flying on a Soyuz uh, 21A with a frigate M upper stage from Plisetsk. And the launch again is Tuesday, March 22nd at with a window from 1200 UTC to 1400 UTC. After that, on March 23rd, we have a spacewalk. Uh, so this is Expedition 66 or spacewalk number 80. And this is to replace a radiator beam valve module hose or several of them, I guess, uh, as well as some other upgrades. So the spacewalk begins at 8.50 a.m. and will last approximately six and a half hours. The coverage, however, will begin at 7.30 a.m. So you have about like, you know, a full hour before the actual spacewalk. So you can check that out on NASA TV. All right. Then after that, we have a New Shepard flight. Believe it or not, this is the fourth crewed New Shepard flight. Like we were just talking about uh, reuse um, going faster than, than we thought, kind of losing track. Uh, so are our New Shepard flights. Um, so on board are going to be six tourists. Um, this is an all tourist flight. Uh, Marty Allen, Pete Davidson. Oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, He's getting it's swapped five out. people. Pete, yeah. <laughs> Pete Davidson is the one who dropped out. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's just five people, um, which is interesting that they didn't have a sixth person to swap in. So it's going to be, uh, Marty Allen, uh, Sharon and Mark Hagel. They're, uh, married, uh, Jim Kitchen and, uh, Dr. George Neald. Um, the flight will be taking place, let's see, on Tuesday, March the 29th. They have a couple hour uh, launch window here uh, from 1330 hours UTC to 1630 hours UTC. And of course, this is launching out of Corn Ranch uh, in West Texas. And so next up, we've got a crew leaving the International Space Station. So on Tuesday, March 29th, at 9.45 a.m., there will be coverage of the Expedition 66 Change of Command Ceremony, where Anton Shklaparov is going to hand uh, command of the ISS over to Tom Marshburn. And then after that, at 11.30 p.m., uh, will be coverage of the farewells and the hatch closure for the MS-19 crew, which is uh, Anton Shklaparov, Mark Vandehey, who recently set an American record for time and space. Congratulations. And uh, Peter uh, Dubrov. And so after that, the hatch closure will occur at about uh, midnight uh, Eastern time. And then uh, with that midnight closures, technically right on March the 30th, the 30th of March on Wednesday. And so the that's uh, at 2.45 a.m. Again, all Eastern time is when the MS-19 crew will undock from the station. Uh, or at least that's when coverage will begin with the undocking scheduled at 3.21 a.m. And then at 6.15 a.m., again, on March 30th, will be coverage of the deorbit burn and landing of the MS-19 crew. With the uh, landing expected to be 
southeast in Kazakhstan at 7.29 a.m. Eastern. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, McMally, Delta V, Chris, Chubby, VT, and Colin for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. I have about 30 or 40 people who I am waiting on address updates to get a signed poster if you've received a direct message from me. Uh, please go ahead and update your profile or reply to my message. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.